All right, good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake. Uh, I am the director of Salt Company here at Salt City, and I just want to say again, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I'm coming at you this morning with a good five months of expertise in fatherhood, um, but actually, no, we're, we care about the opinion of the Bible, so we're going to lean into this again, open up to Philippians 1, and that's where we'll be parked at this morning. Um, but here's the thing, I feel like we have the most like fatherhood-esque type of message this morning. Because we're, we're still in Philippians 1, and we're hitting on Paul's famous line, to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right? And I feel like growing up, this, this verse seemed like this rallying cry for us to, like, seek to die in every way. But as we sit in this passage, I think what we're going to see is that it's actually a call to joy. That throughout this whole book, I actually want to invite you guys, as we're jumping into the book of Philippians together, to do a quick read throughout the entire book, and you'll see the theme of joy playing out throughout the entirety of it. You'll see the word joy or rejoice constantly throughout this passage, and, and Paul is trying to welcome us into, what does it look like to walk a life of joy as a Christian? And I think it's a word that we hear a lot of times in church, we hear it in a lot of songs, um, we, we think of the common phrases, joy to the world. But how often we, we hear about this, but how often we also don't experience that type of joy in our life. Like we know that we should be joyful as Christians, but we are, ourselves are feeling a lack of that in the present moment that we're in. Why is that? Paul is going to kind of welcome us into that form of life that we actually have access to. We've been invited into by Christ. But I feel like we've chosen other ways. And so we're going to look at three different points today. We're going to look at the reason for joy. We're going to look at our source of joy. And then we're going to look at the overflow of joy. So let's look at verse 12 in Philippians 1 to kick us off. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imp imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay, so the Philippian church is worried about Paul. They know that he's in prison, and so they send someone from their church to go check in on Paul. Like, Paul, how are you doing? Everything okay? Like, are you still walking with Jesus? And if, if you can imagine, when Paul was in Philippi, Drew talked about this last week, when Paul was in Philippi, there was this miraculous jailbreak that God intervened, opened up the gates, and actually the jailer came to know Jesus, and so many other people came to know Jesus, and Paul was freed up. So you, you kind of imagine with that jailer being part of that congregation, they're wondering, hey, why are you stuck in prison this time? Like, like what's different about this time? Like, is God still working in your ministry? Is he still present with you? And they're also trying to tell him, hey, there's these other guys that are trying to take your position of authority in our church. They're they're proclaiming the gospel, but they're doing it in a way to tear you down, Paul, and to lift up their own name. And so they're checking in, like, we're worried about you. We want to see how you're doing. 
And Paul's response that he gives them in this moment, he doesn't explain anything about how he's doing. Like as you read through this, there's nothing about Paul and his own desires or what he wants to come about, or rather for his own gain, I should say. He kicks it off with saying he's been thrown in prison and where that might seem like the least likely place for the gospel to advance, Paul's saying, no, that the word of God has spread dramatically throughout the entire prison so that the jailers throughout the prison are actually hearing about this and that the people in the jail cells are actually hearing about this as well, that there's Christians outside of prison that are getting emboldened in their faith and they're actually sharing the gospel more boldly because of it. Like where this seems like the least likely circumstance for the gospel to spread, God is using it in tremendous ways for his glory. And as I said, that there are people that are, it says that they're preaching out of selfish ambition. They're trying to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They're literally trying to call him out for being in prison, trying to make his chains a little bit tighter, to make his time in prison a little bit worse. And Paul's result to that, or response to that is, that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't really care about my own name. They're actually proclaiming the gospel, and in that I rejoice. So how much different is this from when we walked through the book of Galatians, right? So we walked through the book of Galatians, and there was a different gospel being preached. So the, the false gospel was being preached. And Paul says, I'm astonished at how quickly you have ran away from the good news of the gospel. Here, he's saying, I don't care if they're trying to tear me down. At least they're preaching Christ, right? And in that, I rejoice. So we see here that the very reason that Paul has joy is that Christ is being exalted. It's like, I don't, I don't care if my name's being torn down. Christ is being lifted up. And that is the very reason that I find joy. That is the only thing that I care about. And so he's going to continue to explain this being his reason for joy, that Christ would be lifted up in his life. So let's look back at the text, finishing up verse 18. It says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he says again, yes, I will rejoice. Why? And he says, for your prayers and the work of the Spirit of Christ, that this circumstance will turn out for my deliverance. And so you imagine him sitting in this jail cell talking about being delivered in that moment, and you have to wonder, what does he mean by deliverance? Like, I think the first thing that comes to our mind is he's, he's probably talking about being delivered from prison. Like, he wants to get out of those chains, and he wants to be freed up. Or he's talking about getting back to be with the Philippians so that he can kind of assume his authority one more time and kind of downplay those other people that are speaking harm to him. Like that's the first thing that comes up in my mind as I sit with this, him talking about being delivered. And I think that's because our tendency is to see our current circumstances as the very reason that we lack joy. And we long for our circumstance to change. Like our sense of being delivered comes from being pulled from these tough circumstances in our life. Like if this circumstance were to change in my life, then I would find joy. And some of you might have a very real and present example of this. 
maybe a tough relationship in your life, you're wanting a new job, you're not happy where you're at, and so you're like, this circumstance is robbing me of joy, therefore if that changed, then I would have joy. Our focus in the phrase deliverance is being delivered from our problems, but that is not at all what Paul is talking about here. Let's look back through the text. In verse 19, it says that this, will, this circumstance will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, he says, I know that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. The reason that we know that Paul isn't talking about being delivered from prison, because he's like, whether by life or by death, I'll rejoice. Like I could, this situation is not looking good for me. But I can rejoice whether by life or by death. And so Paul's idea of deliverance is no matter the circumstance, Christ can be honored with my life. Like he's looking at the darkest situation of being in prison, looking at the face of death potentially, and he's saying Christ can be honored in my life in this circumstance. Like literally, he's thrown in jail. And he's like, well, this is a sweet place to plant a church. He's like being talked down to, making his prison time a little more difficult. He's like, well, I don't really care about my name. At least Christ is being preached. Hey, Paul, you might die. He's like, even better. Like the dude can't have a situation thrown his way where he is robbed of joy. There is a complete certainty in Paul's mind that in any circumstance, Christ is being exalted with his life. How does he have that certainty? Because he knows that God is always in the business of exalting himself. That's all he can do. He can only exalt himself. And so for Paul's joy, for his reason for joy to be tied to Christ being exalted means that in any circumstance, he has a reason for joy. And in this passage, we see that Paul is following the words of John the Baptist, where John the Baptist said that Christ must increase and I must decrease. If you read through this response, everything about it is how the gospel is advancing, how Christ is being proclaimed, and how Christ will continue to be honored in the life of Paul, not about him being freed up. The analogy that John the Baptist gives is the best man at a wedding, right? So the role of the best man at a wedding is to lift up, to serve, and to celebrate the groom. Okay, how awkward would it be if the best man made the speech all about himself, which I've seen some that are close to that, pretty cringeworthy, right? If he's trying to jump in on every photo, you know, the cutting of the cake, you know, if he's trying to jump in on all those things, that would be incredibly awkward. If he's seeing the entire day as, okay, the, the groom should increase, but how can I increase as well? Not the role. But here's the thing. Many times we do that exact same thing with Christ. Like, Christ, I want you to increase in my life only if I increase as well. Our reason for joy can quickly become, how is my name increasing? How is my experience increasing the way I define it? And so, Christ, I want you to increase, but what's in it for me? Like, are you going to make my life more comfortable? Will I get the promotion that I deserve? Will I get the respect? Will marriage go easy for me? What is it for you? Ray Orland speaks to this, and he speaks specifically to pastors, but I think it connects with all of us. 
So he says, the temptation of a minister is to think he must increase and I can increase. Heck, I'll be big about this. I'll share my stage with Jesus. I owe him everything. Isn't this our temptation at times? Like, Jesus, I owe you everything. I'll share the stage of my life with you. Like, you can have a little space here. I want to proclaim you with everything I have. Just, just share this stage with me as well. And when we try to share that stage of exalting both ourselves and Christ, trying to increase both of us, the only thing that leads to is unmet expectations, us feeling trapped by our present circumstances, and it usually leads to us feeling like we don't get the respect that we deserve from other people. All things that actually rob us of our joy rather than lead to our joy. But when we're exalting Christ becomes our reason for joy, we know that we will be able to rejoice always because Christ is always going to glorify himself. And so in any circumstance, we know that Christ is going to be exalted, which gives us a reason for joy. Where in your life do you need to give Christ back the stage? Like, it's not like he needs it. He's, he's Lord. He's on the throne. He's getting exalted. But where in your own heart and mind do you need to give him back? Like, where have you sought after your own comfort? You sought after your own expectations of how people should treat you. And instead, you need to seek Christ to increase in your life rather than your own name. And guys, here's the thing. This isn't going to be comfortable. This is frightening at times for us to seek to decrease our own name and to lift up Christ. It's hard for us. But it's also the very reason we have to find joy. That Christ would be exalted with our life. And so for Paul, the reason that he had joy is that he knew with certainty that Christ would be exalted in any season of his life. And he wanted Christ to be exalted because Christ himself was the source of his joy. Which brings us to point two. Let's look back at the text in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Okay, have you ever had a situation in your life where you've had two good options that you're trying to choose between. Maybe it's two jobs, maybe it's two cities that you're thinking about, and you feel paralyzed because you're like, these are both amazing options. I don't want to make the wrong choice. Like, God, could you just shut a door here? Could you just point me in one direction, give me that green line that points me in the way that I should go? Like, help me out here. I feel paralyzed to make a choice. That's where Paul is right now. That's the exact moment that Paul is in. He's saying, I cannot choose life or death. Like the term hard press is like these walls caving in, making it so that he can't turn left or right. He feels stuck. Another version says he feels torn. That he feels like his body's being torn in two different directions and he can't move anywhere because of that. And one of the options that he has to choose from, where he says, my desire and that word for desire is a strong word. It's like the deepest longings of his heart. Think of the psalm that says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. That is what is being described here. His desire is to depart, a nice way of saying death, and to be with Christ. 
Paul knows that the greatest treasure he could ever have is Christ himself. Where we can get caught up in what we're doing for Christ or what he's providing for us or the busyness of life and we can quickly forget the greatest treasure that we have. And Paul is saying, I desire to just go and be with him. Where it's not clouded by sin. I actually just get to be in his presence and see the beauty of him and stand in awe and wonder of who Christ is. And I want you to think about your own life as you look back and you see some of those moments where you've been so overwhelmed with joy in the Lord. Like as the song said, those mountaintop experiences. Because here's the reality, that will become the constant for you in your life with Christ in eternity, in heaven. That that is just a glimpse of what you will experience one day. Like those moments of overwhelming contentment and peace will be the constant state that you will walk in. Or I want you to think about the most beautiful things that you have ever seen on this earth. Think of a mountain range. Think about a sunset on a lake. Think about a clear night sky full of stars. And the awe and wonder that you feel as you look at these things, all of you, all of those things are just meant to give you a taste of the awe and wonder that you will experience when you look at the glory of Christ. They're all pointing to you towards the greater beauty that the creator must have if these things are so glorious. And so we know that we will one day be in front of Christ and without a clouded perspective, with unveiled face, we will see the glorious beauty of him. But Paul also knows another aspect about this relationship. That he will be in front of Christ and staring at his beauty, but there's a flip side to that relationship. It's a two-way street there that Christ will also be looking at him in full delight as well. That he will be experiencing standing in front of Christ and being delighted in by Christ. That Paul knew that he would not at all be ashamed because he knew in the face of God one day, he would be experiencing the smile of God looking at him in absolute joy and delight. Like, think about that for yourself. That all of your questioning, all of your wondering of how God views you, maybe you've seen him with furrowed brow, maybe you've seen him as get your act together, whatever that might be, all of those things will vanish as you look at the smile of God looking at you in incredible delight. Like, as we look back at you looking at the most beautiful things of this world and the awe and wonder that is on your face. That same posture of awe and wonder will be on the face of God when he looks at you in your glorified state. Like God will be speechless. There's nothing that will steal his attention from fixing his eyes on the beauty that you will be when you are perfected, when you are made like Christ. And in that moment, God will be, uh, in a way, applauding you for the beauty that you behold. And you will realize that your name is being exalted by the God of the universe. So here's what Paul knew. In living a life where he sought to decrease his own name and exalt the name of Christ, he wasn't just throwing out his joy, and he wasn't just throwing his name to the side, but rather he knew that living that way would actually lead to a greater joy and a greater exaltation of his own name by the face of God one day. Okay, so with the NBA playoffs happening right now, sorry for Brooklyn Nets fans, uh, I've been spending some time looking at some all-time stats, right? Um, And I have a question. Do you know 
What player has the most NBA championships in the last 40 years? Michael Jordan? No. Robert Ory. Okay? Many of you might not know who that is, um, but here's the thing about Robert Ory. He wasn't a, a great player by any means. He was, I mean, he was in the NBA, so he's pretty good. But he, he was like, you know, a decent NBA player. But he paired himself up with some of the greatest stars of all time. Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaq, Kobe, Tim Duncan, all these names that are in the Hall of Fame, he constantly found himself with. And every time he was on those teams, he wasn't thinking, hey, how can I get the ball more? How can I get more time? How can I be the leader of this team? He's like, no, I get to play with some of the greatest stars of all time. Like, I am so pumped to be on their team, to watch them just kill. I'm just going to see how I can feed them the ball, how I can get them to flourish. And here's the thing. With Robert Ory, he ended up winning and succeeding and getting more championships by doing that than he ever would have if he tried to take the lead. Dude probably would have got zero championships, and he ended up with more championships than most NBA players of all time. Here's what Paul is saying to us. When we seek to exalt Christ with our life, when we seek to put the spotlight on him and rally people around him, we end up receiving a greater sense of joy and a greater exaltation of our own name than we ever would if we sought our name to be great on this earth. It doesn't even compare. It's not throwing out our joy or throwing out our name, but rather it's look at how much is in store for you. Fix your eyes on that. I love that Paul is even saying like that he is not at all ashamed right now. He's in quite the situation to feel some shame being in prison and having these people talk down to him. But basically he's saying that he knows he will not at all be ashamed by the face of God one day. And so that doesn't even compare to the experience that he has right now. This graduation into glory will result in the God who created everything looking upon you, applauding with delight, and it will fill you up with a greater joy than you will ever experience trying to run after it in this earth. Your greatest treasure will be experienced to the full. This is why Paul's desire is to depart. Like he said, I just want to be with Christ. I want to be in heaven. I want sin to be done in my life. I just want to experience that relationship to the fullest joy that it could be. He says that that is far better. He longs for that day. But even with that being one of the options, there's something that's pulling him, that's making him feel torn to stay. What could ever compare to that? Let's look at point three, the overflow of joy. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The most shocking part about this passage is usually placed on Paul saying death is gain. But in reality, the most shocking part of this passage is after he talks about the wonder of heaven that he will one day experience, he's willing to set that aside for now so that others might experience it as well. He's literally saying, I, I will put that to the side. And even though Christ is to gain, I will 
feel this torn relationship because I want you to experience him too. I want you to walk in the freedom and joy of knowing him. So he says, convinced of that reality, I know that I will remain with you for your progress and joy in the faith. God, this was so convicting for me to read this week. Like when I think of me wanting to continue in life, my first things are like, there's more things I want to accomplish. There's more things I want to see. And Paul's direction is completely outward focused on the gain of other people and how he can fuel their love for Christ. And so the result of our, uh, us finding our joy in Christ himself is that we begin to live like Christ, dying to our own, own desires. Like Paul in this passage is emulating the life of Christ where he saw the joy set before him. He endured the cross. We saw that Christ left glory. He left his perfect relationship with the Father and Holy Spirit to come to a broken world with broken people and broken relationships that ultimately ended with him going up to the cross to be crucified in our place out of a joy that we might enter into the same glory that he has been a part of for all of eternity. Like that joy is what led him to overflow, to seek other people experiencing that joy as well. And so as a result, Paul is walking in the ways of Christ, seeing that his life is meant to be one of laboring to see more fruit come about. Like this idea of hard work and labor to see other people enjoy Christ to a greater degree or come to know him for the first time. And here we see that where we are more often focused on our resume and how to build that, Paul is focused on what his eulogy will say. Like Paul is saying, man, when I get to the end of my life, I want people to look at me and say, that man caused me to know and love Christ more. That I've been around him. I don't, man, I never hear him talking about himself. All he's doing is just lifting up the name of Christ. All he's doing is pointing me to the beauty of Christ. All he's doing is talking about how he can rejoice because Christ is being exalted. This is the life that Paul is seeking to live. And so when our joy is centered on Christ, the obvious response is going to be a joy that overflows to the life of others, that they might experience it as well. Okay, so I, uh, I have an ice tray here. Uh, a lot of you probably know what, that, what this does, right? Uh, but do you know the best way to fill up an ice tray? There is an obvious answer. Okay, the normal, you know, the normal boring way is you, you open or you turn on the water and you slowly just fill up one by one, right? You go to every single gap in this thing. It's not the best way though, guys, okay? You can do better. So here's what you do. When you turn on the water, you actually put it at an angle and you keep that water running in this top corner to where as this one gets filled up, it then overflows and begins to fill up the next and the next and the next until the entire tray is full. As you're filling up the one, it is overflowing to the next. And here's what Paul is trying to point out for us, that our life in Christ is meant to be one that overflows to impact other people. Like, we're not just supposed to focus on how do I fill up my own uh, enjoyment in Christ? How do I fill up my own enjoyment on, in this time that I have on earth? But rather, no, we are called to seek how can I have a joy that is so great that actually overflows to impact others around me. Like, imagine what would happen to the city of Minneapolis if this room full of people sought to have a joy that overflowed to impact other people. 
that actually in wherever you are at in life, you saw it as an opportunity to encourage someone in Christ, to welcome them into the same joy that you have been a part of in Christ. And this is where it really hits the ground for us. Because God has placed you where you're at, in the season that you're in, around the people that you're in, in order to make an impact for him. And a lot of times, we can say, okay, but my current circumstance is making it difficult. But after we look at this passage, you don't need another circumstance to make an impact for Christ. Like, I think Paul has probably the best excuse um, of taking a season off, of trying to make an impact for Christ, being in prison. And yet he sees it as an opportunity for the gospel to flourish. So when Paul says to live is Christ, he means that we are to labor and to spend our lives in such a way that other people might be welcomed into the beauty of Christ as well. And this way of living, this laboring for fruitfulness, this dying to ourselves like Christ did to welcome other people into that joy, it's not always going to be easy. And a lot of times it's going to ask a lot of us. But here's one thing that we know. It will always be worth it. This avenue of living to where we are seeking to exalt Christ in everything we do and exalt Christ in the life of others will always lead to joy because Christ is always going to be exalting himself. And so the question I have for you is what is one step you can take this week to increase someone else's joy in Christ? Maybe it's someone in this family that needs a reminder of who they are in Christ, that they need to hear the truth of the gospel over their life one more time. It could be you sacrificing your time and your talents to actually serve someone that's in need, that needs other people to rally around them in this moment. For the fathers in the room, it could be restarting to remember that your role is to die to yourself, to sacrifice your desires, to serve your family, to serve your wife, and not seeking anything in return because you're living out as Christ did for his bride by dying for her. It could be to step out in courage to declare the gospel to someone who needs to hear it. What is it for you? And here's the amazing thing. As we go week by week, taking step by step to be an influence for Christ, seeking to encourage other people to fix their eyes on Christ. Like our life isn't about look at me. It's look at Christ, putting the spotlight on him. As we continue to do this more and more, we have the incredible opportunity of creating eternal ripple effects in the lives of other people that they would join in on the joy and delight of Christ. And we do all of this for the glory of Christ and for our greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for ultimately setting the example of dying to your own desires for the joy of another. That you left perfection to come down and to live amongst us so that we might be welcomed into that joy. God, it's nothing that we did. We can't live a perfect life. We can't please you by our own works. But God, you came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And you died on the cross that we deserve to die on so that we could be welcomed into relationship with you. The very way that we were wired for joy was to experience joy in you. And now we get that invitation freely to us. So God, help us to see you as our greatest treasure, not how we perform for you, not what we do for you or the things that you provide us in life, but just you. Father, help us to fix our eyes on you this week. 
And would that awe and wonder that we feel when we look at you cause us to be an overflow of joy to impact other people, that they might be welcomed into that eternal celebration of what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.